War has returned to Europe. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Oil and gas prices are soaring, and there are growing fears that this could interrupt supplies around the world. The invasion and the political disputes around it are disrupting the global order. Facebook parent Meta just now responding to the news that Facebook will be blocked. Western firms are hastily rethinking their business in Russia. There really is a lack of enthusiasm to get behind the rebuilding of sort of the fractured international order. Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been a lot of talk about the return of history. And it's very clear that post-1989 assumptions that liberal democracy, open markets with a single model on which most countries would converge, now looks naive at best. My name's John Garvey, and I lead the international policy practice at Global Council. I'm delighted to introduce today the first in a new series of podcasts focused on geopolitics, which for these purposes we're defining as the shifting balance of competition and collaboration between countries and institutions. The premise of this podcast is that geopolitics never really went away. Many of the most important struggles of the past 20 years have been taking place in technical and technological arenas which were far from public view, but they are now rising rapidly up the international agenda. So our aim with this podcast is to shine a spotlight on those policy debates, from infrastructure to cybersecurity to sanctions, which we believe will be fundamental to the business operating environment in the years ahead. The focus of our first episode today is the geopolitics of technology standards, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Thomas Lamanauskas. Thomas has spent over 20 years in leadership roles in ICT, in both the public and the private sector. He's worked on policy and regulatory development everywhere from Lithuania to the UK to Vanuatu. And he's currently campaigning to be the new Deputy Secretary General of the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, which is often described as the most important international body that you've never heard of. Today, we're going to cover the role of the ITU, some of the challenges that it faces as it deals with emerging technology, the increasingly political nature of the standard setting process, how businesses can engage in that environment, and much, much more. So Thomas, welcome to GC. Could you begin by giving us a bit of context about why you're bidding for this role and how you focused your campaign? Thank you very, very much, John. It's really a pleasure to be chatting here with you. And always a pleasure uh, to chat with with friends and colleagues from uh, Global Council. So, and uh, thank you for for inviting me for this specific topic and and for asking the great question to start with. So, you know, as you rightly mentioned, I've spent over 20 years now in this public policy and regulatory and strategy arena of information communication technologies, different parts of the world, from Lithuania, Eastern Europe, to Middle East, Bahrain, to the Caribbean, to the Virgin Islands, to uh, Vanuatu in the Pacific, and uh, as well as working for part with later on coming back as a COVID-19 strategy advisor, also working in the private sector, uh, coordinating public policies for for multinational company across its footprint in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, North Africa, um, and so on. So I've seen the environment, ICT environment, from uh, from different perspectives and different angles. I've also seen ITU as an organization and like a broader UN, and seeing its abilities, what it can deliver, how important it is, how it's still respected it is by many people around the world, at the same time where we can be even more impactful, where we can deliver better, and where we could help 
all of us to live up to the challenges of today, including, and, and I talk a lot in my campaign, but probably the same, same things we all talk about, you know, still, you know, the, you know, pandemic, you know, or pandemic aspects, climate crisis aspects, but also digital world, you know, making sure that everyone in the world is, is part of that digital world and is digitally empowered to be there. And I think I can contribute in, in delivering on this. I think I can contribute, of course, as being part of the team uh, that could make uh, this part of the ecosystem even more efficient, even more effective, more flexible, more agile, <clears throat> and deliver uh, to all of us uh, to both uh, tackle the challenges, but also seize the opportunities of today. Just describe a bit more for our listeners how the ITU's main priorities are divided at the moment and what how you would see those changing going forward. Thank you very much. And as you mentioned in the beginning, I have to regretfully agree with that assessment. So that's probably, ITU is probably the organization that's the most important organization that no one has heard about. But... Uh, uh, but you know, when you are part of the ITU family, you always feel it's everyone knows about it, and it's uh, and it's the most important thing ever. But uh, one thing maybe for your listeners is, is interesting to, to understand is actually an organization that's the oldest United Nations agency. Actually, on the seventeenth of May, just celebrated one hundred fifty-seven years since its establishment. So clearly, in this one hundred fifty-seven years, a lot has changed in digital environment, and you know, and and. Uh, still probably in the next 150 will change um, as much. So ITU started as an organization to coordinate telegraph communications at the time, you know, so uh, international telegraph communications moved to radio, you know, when, when wireless communications started and then added later on uh, a few decades ago, the development sector, ensuring that everyone has an equitable uh, right to develop in, in terms of digital, in terms of connectivity. So, and that also reflects how ITU, in a way, this history, you know, reflects how ITU is working now. So, of course, big priority is around coordinating wireless communications. So, from mobile communications that we use every day, you know, so 4G, 5G, you know, in the next 10 years, probably 6G, uh, to satellite communications. And, uh, you know, we, we already used that uh, for many years. Now, of course, it's even more popularized by new developments in so-called low Earth orbit or and middle Earth orbit space with, with the names like Starlink of Elon Musk and Amazon Kuiper um, and um, OneWeb coming into the picture and really, you know, bringing a lot of uh, activities there. Uh, so, you know, so for example, if you want, if this nation wants to put a satellite up in the sky, so that's this coordination goes through to you if you want to introduce new uh, new technology in a wireless space that needs to be agreed on a global level or to you, because otherwise you can cause harmful interference, we call that technical term, to other nations across uh, across the border. Uh, then all the technical standards and, you know, telecommunications, now increasingly broad ICT technical standards are set by, uh, uh, agreed in the ITU. So these technical standards can include such things like, for example, numbering code. So plus four, four for the UK is something that's uh, that's agreed by ITU, the different technologies on the network. So for example, video codecs, and maybe again, interesting for the listeners to know that ITU actually got a couple of Emmy awards, you know, like it's interesting you know, to see also for the work on the broadcasting 
uh, an audio quality space and also on a, a codex you know, to, to transmit video and audio. Uh, and then the last uh, bit, which I mentioned, is more is a broader so-called development piece. But development piece is, is very broad. It's from statistics, so that we know how many internet users are in the world and where the gaps, or how many mobile users are in the world, and, and where, what are the gaps in which countries maybe need to be uh, assisted, or, or uh, you know they, they need to assist themselves with the, with the help of other people. Uh, but also, you know, things like exchanging information among regulatory authorities to help each other and share best practices, like of comms of this world, you know, so exchanging, exchanging information, how to regulate, you know, how to help the market, and then to practical projects, you know, so a couple of examples of my recent work with ATU is as part of our COVID-19 strategy, where, for example, rec for covid platform, which enabled uh, regulatory authorities and policymakers around the world very quickly to exchange information what they were doing in the face of COVID. Like, and things like that included emergency spectrum assignments to relieve pressure on the wireless networks. Or, uh, or different, for example, changing the maybe quality of, of video transmissions you know, or streaming services and uh, you know, assigning uh, you know, different other initiatives, you know, that, uh, that the kind of special tariffs, for example, for users to make it more affordable and, and so on and so on. But other part was, was more implementational, <clears throat> which we launched the uh, COVID uh, so Connect to Recover initiative, so-called. So Connect to Recover initiative funded by a few member states um, for ITU, starting with Japan and Saudi Arabia, was, assisted, uh, was assisting member states you know, less connected member states to strengthen digital infrastructure in the face of COVID-19. And in the middle of that was also such an like economic experts roundtable, helping, you know, bringing leading experts in the field, economic experts in the field of, uh, you know, telecommunications, but who already did like, some studies how COVID-19 is affecting the industry and actually having that consolidated what we call sometimes market consensus view, you know, so, you know, how COVID is impacted the industry so that policymakers around the world could get quick insights, you know, what's happening and then plan the actions accordingly. So just uh, some of the examples of plethora initiatives that ITU is doing and could be helpful for the countries. The range of the work that's going on is absolutely fascinating and particularly fascinating that it spans what I suppose you've described as sharing best practice and helping coordinate government efforts, but also really um, setting the guardrails and the infrastructure, if you like, of the emerging economy by establishing new standards and then the separate agenda of, sort of building capacity in the developing world. Across all of that uh, shaping, if you like, of the international system, there are clearly some really important influential decisions that are being taken. What is the process of um, both prioritizing where the ITU is going to focus and then where you have, um, where you inevitably have debates and differences of view, what's the process of arriving at some kind of consensus? So ITU as a UN agency is member states driven organization to start with. You know, and uh, so it's 193 member states that make the decisions assisted by the secretariat and uh, held uh, by the governance uh, governance uh, let's say frameworks you know so uh, so basically and different bodies that of member states usually that are involved in that process there's also it is rather unique as the UN agency because it also has private sector members as its members as well as academia members which participate 
in, um, let's say, in most of the substantive work. So standard setting study groups or, you know, exchanges of best practices, uh, but also in such bodies like, let's say, Broadband Commission, which is co-convened by ITU and uh, UNESCO. So uh, ITU also has this long-standing principle of being consensus-driven. So ITU membership really doesn't like to vote. Mm -hmm. And that's probably is also important, you know, because when you talk about, you know, single communication standards, you know, you try to really keep that together. You really like to keep that one standard that people from point A, when they want to talk with the people from point B, you know, they can understand each other. You know, the signal can be can transmitted in the way. And this consensus is very important principle there, not to create like a different kind of islands of 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 communication you know it did happen in the past when it, you had to vote actually 10 years ago we had this pretty landmark conference of uh, all conference national communications which some of the big you know dividing debates about the you know about the, the, the internet governance and uh, and things around cybersecurity and you know so how how the future of that part of the governance will be set and you know but and the votes happened but they were not like they're not perceived as a good thing, if you will, if, you know, and they, they always then after the big dividing votes, usually we, we have the time where we'll still try to bring membership together and rebuild this consensus making ability. So I think it's sometimes, of course, uh, as as you may think, you know, from, from a UN perspective, sometimes UN is accused to be slow, you know, and might use part of the UN. But I think that's part of a, you know, if you want to build consensus, it's not easy, you know, but hopefully the year is once you build a consensus, it will stick, you know, so and, and people will implement. So then, of course, so ITU has these different layers and, you know, from from plenipotentiary conference, which will happen uh, later this year and elect the new elected officials, which I'm kind of looking forward to. And, you know, to the council, to the radio regulations board governing the uh, mostly radio use, radio spectrum use to, you know, there are so the different what they do is composed of so-called sectors. So all these three areas, radio communication sector, standardization sector, and development sector. Within the sectors, you have sector advisor groups, you have study groups. The study groups actually do the actual work of like questions, looking at specific standards and so on. So you have this complex governance, but I think the most important in this thing that it's really participatory and it's really driven by the people who come, you know, member states and other stakeholders, you know, facilitating that consensus uh, driven decisions that would hopefully help us all progress on digital development. Could you maybe could you maybe give an example of a particular policy area where the debaters emerge through the ITU in terms of how those different stakeholder groups uh, would treat it at different stages of the policy evolution, how it progresses up the system? So I think the standard. So it depends again over the different areas, you know. So for example, the standardization sector, radio sector, is, is mainly. You know, standard driven. So you have the issue, you know, so you have a, like a high level body, be so called assembly for the sector, conference for the sector, setting agenda for the four year cycle, saying these are the questions we'll be looking into, these are the questions that are important. And then those questions going down to the study groups. Within study groups, you have, you know, specific groups for specific sub questions or working parties. So you have experts from the stakeholders participating in those uh, questions, agreeing, you know, doing studies if necessary, extra studies if necessary, looking at that, especially, you know, radio communication sector is a lot of studies to see the compatibility between different, let's say, what technically called services, think about that, like devices or users of spectrum, 
you know, once you have that information, you try, you know, you start building agreement, like from, if I can say bottom, bottom up, you know, so experts and, you yeah. know, then high level experts, and then, you know, then the finally uh, decision makers. So, and, you know, so also interesting in, um, in ITU, they have involvement of technical experts, but you also have involvement of diplomats and have that interplay between like a, you know, high brow politics of today, you know, and, and setting and having these big, big debates about where the digital governance is going and where the digital world is going, you know, and then actual technical experts, you know, with their, with their actual expertise and engineering question, economic questions, contributing how to resolve those issues and and proposing those solutions. So, and of course, you have both good and bad from this converging of those two worlds, you know. So, mm-hmm. of course, you have ability to really look it through from the politics and policy level to down to how to implement. But, of course, sometimes it's it's not easy to get, you know, to, to agree, you know, especially when we talk on a, about consensus driven decisions of all these levels. Now, if you talk about development sector, then usually there's different kind of other flexible ways of doing that. It's also project implementation, working with partners, you know, setting up initiatives where we bring partner-led coalitions to, to actually implement, you know, so whether it's like things like I mentioned, like Connect to Recover, now our development sector is launching so we'll partner to connect uh, in, you know, our initiative where bringing different partners to pledge uh, pledge what they would do to progress additional development around the world, you know, matchmaking private sector people with their, uh, with their countries and ensuring that those projects are implemented. So a lot of those things. But I think the best way to think about that here is just kind of, it's like a meeting place. It's like the platform, you know, for the digital development. You know, we like this word platform these days where people come together and are enabled to exchange information, to help each other, you know, to, to, to achieve their own objectives in this, you know, cohe- consensus-driven, cohesive and collaborative way. In a way, what you've just described sounds like a very hopeful and idealized right. version of the multilateral system. And I suppose I wonder whether because you're dealing with such technical issues often, you have this great accumulation mm-hmm. of actual technical experts working often pre-COVID face-to-face in this environment. Do you find that actually preempts some of the uh, political and diplomatic difficulties that you might see in other UN bodies? In other words, are you able to arrive at solutions a bit more quickly so you don't get to the point where diplomats are sort of arriving with pre-agreed positions? I think yes and no. I think it very much depends on the topic. I think on traditional topics, uh, which are less of the public side. I don't know. Let's say if we want to agree on a new standard on submarine cables and the fiber networks, you know, so that's probably faster and easier, you know, to agree because these are like a technical experts agreeing that. But of course, you know, we are part of the world. We are part of the diplomatic world. We are part of the United Nations system. And of course, politics plays a big and important role there. I think, though, what's happened over the last few years that this, this ecosystem became more complex, which is actually a, a good way, you know, because it used to be that the ITU was probably the place and the only place to come for digital issues. And sometimes ITU, I can admit, was ill-equipped to deal with some of the issues because ITU is still the origin. It is expert origin, you know, engineering, technical, economic, maybe, but it's expert origin. So its origin is not political origin, you know, then it became 
it was a technical organization then became member of the United Nations system, you know, rather than um, other, rather than other way around, rather than being set up as a political organization. So of course, it used the whole structure is not always set to make those kind of you know high level political decisions. You know what is good now that uh, you know that you have a lot of other bodies you know that are kind of taking on those roles. You know, so you have you know Human Rights Council that increasingly is discussing you know, digital issues and, and uh, you know, making decisions and um, issuing their opinions, how those should be dealt, have a new development over the last year or so, you know, on so-called um, Roadmap for Digital Cooperation launched by um, Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, and, and uh, setting up the Office of Tech Envoy uh, in, in New York's system. So basically to coordinate different digital issues and work done throughout the UN system, you know. So you have also other players like UNESCO, for example, taking a role on artificial intelligence, ethics of artificial, artificial intelligence. You have now the new cybercrime convention being discussed in, in the New York format. So you have these other places and players. Of course, for ITU, in a way, is good because there's other places to make some decisions that you may be not the best to make. At the same time, of course, you know, we always need to then make sure that we clean up and have a clear role for ITU in that system. Mm-hmm. That they sometimes say, and it's maybe it's not, now comes my passion from someone at ITU insider, that we don't become like a third contributor to the fifth question on everything, you know, that we actually understand where ITU can contribute, contribute meaningfully and impactfully, and where we can support and where maybe others, you know, others can do it better, you know, because digital is everything now. So the risk is that you will try to be part of everything. But of course, then it's not possible to be impactful. As far as the whole spectrum of digital issues is coordinated through the UN, do you still view the ITU as the central body that should be doing that? Should it in effect sit over the other UN bodies and areas that you've mentioned? No, I don't think so. You know, I think it's, I generally am pretty against that concept of like someone kind of being above anyone or like right. this hierarchy, especially in this kind of UN system or someone being, you know, we used to use that word preeminent. Some people used to use the word preeminent. I'm not a big fan of that word, you know. So I think everyone has to play the role in the system. And, uh, and you know, even that comes from national level. So I was part of the Sivanuata administration, part of Prime Minister's office, and we had this office of government chief information officer that was like coordinating body for all the things digital in government. And then we said, so we, when we, you know, I was tasked to help set up this policy, uh, policy arm and coordinating arm. And the question was, we had two choices. Do we try to do everything and lead in everything? That means leading or e-agriculture, or e-education, e-health and everything like that. Or do we want to kind of be that, you know, let others lead and us kind of contributing with our expertise and kind of facilitating that work. And we realized the only reasonable and also and the only feasible way is that others lead. Uh, on the specific subject matter topics and for us to be for us to kind of work on setting up this uh, infrastructure for other people's work be it like a you know digital infrastructure physically helping to connect the country you know and also you know or some sort of uh, infrastructure level infrastructure level let's see policies you know so be the digital connectivity or that's well facilitating like uh, you know, basic cybersecurity policy for the country and all that. And then, and then again, being that hub of expertise that others can tap in. And I probably see the same role in a big way for ITU, you know. So this is the agency that sits in the system as an expert 
So it can provide you know, expertise for all the bodies in the UN, especially as far as digital infrastructure connectivity is concerned and things around that, you know, can provide its input to the political decision-making bodies from the General Assembly to Security Council, which is also, I think, will increasingly be probably involved in these and take the guide and lead from those bodies, you know, in, in, in this expertise work, you know, in this technical expert work. At the same time, you know, being that expert, you know, that credible expert that can provide those, uh, that credible opinion, but then at the same time, you know, allowing the political decisions uh, made, political decisions needed to be made. You know, I was also, my most of my career was a telecommunications or electronic communications regulator, you know, and I would always say, you know, as a regulator, even if you're a director general, you know, you shouldn't be too proud to know when it's your decision, when you need to go to ask the minister, and when maybe there's a cabinet-level decision or even a head of state decision, and you shouldn't be too proud to admit that this is, you know, not my role, and then this is my role, and this is my place to kind of give a decision. You mentioned earlier that uh, obviously your campaign is leading up to the plenipotentiary conference, which uh, is a four-year, four happens every four years and will happen this autumn. Your role is part of a wider slate of roles that are up for renewal, including the Secretary General and the wider council. Mm -hmm. Can you just describe um, whether there's a sense of a particular agenda that candidates will will try and push through at that point? Is is this a point of renewal for the ITU or is it more of a is it more of a sort of internal administrative uh, function? I think candidates have an agenda. Of course that agenda has two constraining elements. One is that you have to work within the team, at least of, you know, in the core team of five elected officials, you know, so Secretary General, Deputy Secretary General, and three directors of bureaus supporting these three different sectors that they mentioned, development, radio, and standards. Uh, but also with also understanding that member states are, in the end of the day, the leaders of the organization, and they will express their opinion through the council, which is also elected. And they will set an agenda. So everyone, so everyone has to put the things on the table, but then of course allow those things to come into this meal that you know that that will mesh and match everything, and hopefully will be tasty enough, you know, to, to try at the end. So so I myself come with this kind of aspect of okay, what's my role expected to be, and what I think I should be bringing to the table, and a number of a couple of things I just mentioned. So. So Deputy Secretary General's role, again, it's maybe too technical, but it's the only role that's not defined by constitutional and conventional ATU. So, uh, but there are resolutions of the conference that basically says, okay, this is the chief operating officer of the organization, so make, sh make sure that the engine is run well. And there's also the guarantor of what we call one ATU, ensuring this intersectoral coordination. So ensuring that the whole ATU works cohesively, that all these different bureaus and sectors, they work towards the same vision, the same goals. And uh, from that perspective, I, I'm identifying my priorities, which I want to kind of bring, you know. So one is, uh, of course, around the connectivity, but connectivity in a very specific sense. I, I talk about partnerships um, for connectivity. So ensuring that all the rights stakeholders sit around the table when we try to connect everyone around the world, if, as maybe. Um, and, you know, ITU has long history working, let's say, with telecommunications operators. 
in recent years started working more with the, uh, let's say, digital companies, uh, tech companies. But now we see in the last few years, let's say, digital infra- sorry, infrastructure funds and private equity funds and other players in the financial sector being much more interested in this ecosystem. And we definitely need to engage them if we want to have all the right players and all, all the right views. So one of my roles I see is would be to bring all those right players to the ecosystem so that other bureaus and other initiatives and other sectors can benefit from that. And the other piece is uh, sustainability and fighting the climate crisis. And again, I think this is so-called all hands, uh, hands on deck approaches needed because you know now it's no longer something in the distant future. You know, so recent studies show that in the next five years, it's very high likelihood that the temperature already will rise above one point five degrees Celsius. You know, so we have to act now, and that means that every organization needs to do that. And, and my role would be across the ITU to push that agenda and to ensure that every initiative, every program, every project, every everything has that climate crisis. Uh, lens, if if you will. And then ITU has a specific role to play in certain things, like, for example, disaster management, which is also becomes even more important uh, with the climate crisis. The last of the what they call priorities is like comes from that chief operating officer perspective. So ensuring that the engine is well oiled and well run, and I call it fit for the times ITU. So ensuring that it's more flexible, more agile, you know, can move faster, can implement through partnerships on the ground can sign up partners faster. Some, uh, we still have some challenges there. Man- manages this budget and strategy in a really impact-driven way, uh, so-called full implementation of results-based management, you know, is accountable, but not bureaucratically and process-driven accountable, but meaningfully accountable So and transparent. So all these things that the engine needs to be, is run well, and member states are happy and can trust that engine, and then the money are well spent to achieve objectives. And the last thing, and that's probably, it's less a priority, it's more like an approach, which I'm always putting at the table. And you mentioned the very beginning about this world is increasingly tense and, uh, and, and, and things are happening, you know, we, you know and then we have, you know, we have pandemics, pandemic, you know, we have wars and, and, and you know, and the world is, is not an easy place to live. But the multilateral system, I think, you know, was created exactly for those times. And sometimes we kind of we kind of get uh, disappointed with it, that it's not active enough, not fast enough. But I think but I think we also need to understand that that comes back to this what what, what I was mentioning about consensus during bringing everyone around the table. It's not the it's organization, it's the only place where even how much we disagree with each other, we still come to that place. And that is not necessarily the place to agree. This is a place to engage and discuss and then find the areas to agree and find the places to agree and find the ways to kind of drive and find opportunities to agree and, and, and how to drive this consensus. But it's also very important for me and to the countries, you know, that every country in the world can have the voice in that place and real empowered voice in that place. So it's not just, you know, they're just not observers, passive listeners, but they actually participate in debate, have an opinion, informed opinion and contribute to consensus. And I think a true believer, being myself from a small country, that when the system is opened up to voices of more players, probably we can find these solutions to, to the current challenges uh, better you know, and better solutions and hopefully, you know, more, more creative solutions. So I think that's my approach as well, which I want to bring to the table, really being that continuous guarantor that 
multinational system and like the US part of it will always be inclusive of all its members, will always have this voice of every member heard and ability, you know, to participate in those discussions, regardless how powerful, how big and how developed or not developed they are. Let's go a bit deeper into politics of this, as you set them out. The area in which I suppose the politics is most manifest is the politics of standard setting. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things that we've seen in the last few years is that the major powers, uh, particularly the US and China, actually publish statements in which they describe their ambitions to set the standards in emerging tech for the next mm-hmm. century. And this has become an increasingly explicit goal in of uh of foreign policy. It's actually one of the, it's mentioned in a very central way in uh, the UK's recent uh, foreign policy strategy, the integrated review as well. So my question is when, when, it, when it's that explicitly stated, and I think in fact one Chinese document says something like the country which controls the discourse power and the standards power will set the terms of the debate for the next century. I'm misquoting slightly, but that's the sense. When it is that explicit, how do you go about mitigating that and bringing people to the table in the consensual way that the ITU needs to operate? How how do you diffuse some of that? So part of the tension, and it is that's kind of for me. You need a part of the tension (laughs) to create something out of it. You know, so one of the kind of you know many years ago, you know, doing some leadership courses is you know that the best place to achieve something, the best place to achieve something when there is a heat, but it's not, and there is some fire, but that fire is not burning everything, <laughs> but it's warming up. It's like, you know, maybe I gave this metaphor of meal before, you know, but I, uh, when you cook the meal, but not burning the house, you know, and when there is no uh, fire, then maybe nothing is happening. So I think by itself, people wanting to lead in standards, set the standards, it's not a bad thing. That means investments in technology. That means investments in thinking. Means investments in, in, in uh, thinking about what are the standards that can be winning standards. And and winning means not only geopolitically winning, you know, by diplomats going around, but winning means it's like you know being technologically superior and, and more acceptable and user friendly and and so on and so on. Now this whole divergence of standards we had in the past, we sometimes forget that in so-called two G world of mobile communications, we had to change the phone when we crossed the Atlantic, you know. So, you know, we still have different, you know, plugs to put in our electricity sockets, you know. So, you know, so it's not like totally even like let's see for the things like digital television, we had quite a bit of a I can say competition between different uh, standards. Um, across the world, you know, and we have at least three sets of standards, you know, settling in uh, Europe, of course, uh, having its DVBT, but, uh, but then different standards in, in different other parts of the world. So the whole this competition um, uh, for standards, let's say, it's not like a totally new. I think, of course, now it's, it's, it gets us more like a broader, bigger geopolitical aspect, not only sometimes, not only economic aspect, but, but broader geopolitical aspect. And again, of course, it can be, you know, it's useful in the way that even more investments and tension, of course, when the fire, you know, is too high, when it means that people are not even able to talk to each other, to agree with each other, that's not great, you know. So I think, so the idea of some place like ITU, I think that's why we need places like ITU, 
So where those people with these different ideas, with different developments can still come and debate and discuss. And I'll use that word fight in a kind of simpler way, but you know, sometimes it is fight it out and whose ideas, whose standards are better, who can find most support around the world for their, uh, for, for their ideas and for their technology. You know, and also bring their private sector players on, on board. You know, and some people are asking me why some regions maybe, you know, dominate the debate. You know, well, also this partly that they also participate more, you know. So and sometimes, you know, we say, look, if we don't participate, we don't, you know, we're not, you know, it's like in elections. If you don't vote, you cannot complain about who is elected, you know. So some so a little bit like that in this kind of global standard setting. You know, if you want to have an influence, you have to be there. I think it's also, and you know, we're also exploring other things. Maybe some sometimes we need explicitly more regional approaches that we can have, like a, you know, build to to the global consensus. You know, not like not always. You know, we don't always need to start from a global perspective, but will be global. But allow things to be experimented and played out and agreed on a on a regional levels. You know, some standards maybe would be, you know, maybe better agreed in you know in the countries among similar geographic. Uh, let's say geographic patterns and um, development patterns and all others, you know, and then seeing whether we can reconcile them with the, with the standards that agreed with other countries. So I think, I think uh, for me, maybe the conclusion is the fact that uh, that this small kind of tension to that era is by definition is not bad. I think. Uh, in theory, at least, and hopefully in practice, that only increases importance in these neutral forums, bringing everyone together like ITU, I think uh, the only thing is, that of course, it's not easy to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. And, but I think on a day-to-day -day basis, we still need to keep, you know, and hopefully places like you can help to keep the big picture in mind. It's another day, it's about, you know, connecting the people around the world and giving them digital tools to be digitally empowered, uh, that it's uh, allowing different technologies and different companies to compete in, in, in fair way. In, in this world, you know, as as much fairer and, and as more, you know, direct as possible, and uh, to let the best ideas uh, win in this open discussion contest of those ideas. So I can see, I can see the merits of very clear merits of the environment you describe when you're talking about, I suppose, a, a sort of intellectual process, creative destruction, and yeah. you know, this is this is an environment and probably quite a unique environment in which uh, people from countries which are, you know, to put it politely, diplomatic rivals can actually engage on the technical substance of the debate. The thing that uh, I suppose I find slightly harder to reconcile and something that I know uh, worries quite a lot of the businesses that we deal with is this idea of a potential uh, bifurcation or decoupling between spheres of influence. Over the weekend, we had um, the second meeting of the EU-US Trade and Technology yeah. Council. One of the things that they were talking about, one of the announcements that was made, uh, was a new group on standardization. And I think they've agreed that they will look particularly to agree, sort of preemptively agree standards in emerging technology. So talking about things like 6G, Web 3.0, blockchain, and so on. And the way you've described it, it it sounds more like you think that this could be a sort of building block towards a global standard rather than 
necessarily that sort of divergence. Is is that right? I mean, that's ideal scenario. But, you know, sometimes this will remain in a kind of divergent scenario. You know, now this uh, I described gives some examples where we had for, for quite a while. We actually now... You know, we we now are very lucky. You know that the four G and five G phones actually can travel the world and can and they work. It wasn't the case, you know, in the past. Now, of course, there is risk. Will it be? Will it stay like that? Will it stay like that in the future? You no. Know? Will we have to change things? You know, when when we go in the future, even with the railways, as you know, sometimes you know, there's still the borders on which you kind of have to put a car from one type of rails to another type of rails. You know, and it's not the greatest thing. You know, so but of course we don't want that. And, and that, you know, we don't want to have, to have that as much as possible, digital realm. But I think for me is all, so I, you know, I don't think there will be either ideal scenario or, or nightmare scenario, like where the world is totally splintered. I think there's huge value of all of us being at least in the same space and able to interconnect. And also huge value of us being able to talk to each other, huge value of us to exchange information with each other. So even if we are not only rivals but enemies, we still need to f- have a way to communicate, uh, communicate with each other, and uh, and look for those opportunities not not to be enemies anymore if, if there are so. Now I think I think it's also then for me. Then I look at the stack of technologies. You know, from you know I think what this. So I think for me the most of course the fundamental player, layers. You know how we. You know how we communicate, how we create that global communication platform is more, you know, is a fundamental layer. Now, the further we go higher up the stack, when we start talking about applications, or we start talking about approaches to privacy, you know, or so then probably there's more divergence as possible, and probably natural, you know, because, and I mean, I'm. I'm from Europe, you know, I'm, I'm half certain, you know, I, I'm from Lithuania, my country has certain history, you know, you know, I, I grew up with certain kind of views of the world, but that's, these are my views of the world, and, and I want to hold them, but I also recognize that other parts of the world have different views of the world, you know, and I'm probably, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't expect to be able to convince everyone around the world that my views are the, the right views. I think, I think why I like places like ITU, I think, but I would like to convince that that we all still, you know, we need to exchange information about our views of the world. We need to be able to exchange, inform- you know, exchange the views. We need to be able to still engage and, and see what's, what's useful for each other. And that's what, that's why I think, you know, ITU and these global standards, hopefully at least in the kind of low and more technical connecting stacks will always be more important. And as more we go to the, let's say, like application, use, you know, policy levels, is probably will be more divergence. And the risk would be if that kind of higher up goes all the way down saying, no, now we need to kind of split everything, you know? So if we're looking at a technology like AI, general purpose AI specifically, your view is that the job of the ITU is more to sort of set the technical parameters of how that technology might operate. And then the ethical... Uh, dimensions of the debate have to be decided elsewhere. So you see, the AI is a hugely sensitive and controversial topic when we come to ITU. You know, some countries are very wary to even bring AI topic to ITU. Exactly, I guess, for the same reasons that they worry that then once AI is in ITU, then everything will be in ITU, you know? And I also, in my discussions with the member states and my campaign, I'm I'm wanting to be more granular, to a little bit like level AQ say. And, and, and for me, let's say, let's take an AI topic. For me, clearly, that 
let's say, AI users, especially AI users in telecoms digital infrastructure, like, okay, AI for network management, AI for energy efficiency, you know, AI for customer value management, telecom networks is clearly IT mandate. Now, AI, AI ethics, probably clearly not IDU mandate, you know, IDU can contribute from the technical expertise, how AI works, what is machine learning, what is neural networks and all that, but clearly AI ethics, in my view, is not kind of, is not what ITU is. Let's say, I'll say it simpler, it's not what ITU is best equipped to do, you know, in terms of, you know, people, you know, experts and all that. And there are other places, you know, and there are places are doing that, like UNESCO just issued um, recently AI guidelines on ethics you know there's a human rights council there are other yeah there are there are the bodies you know so now now and then in between that's where we have to kind of unravel and and decipher it probably will be places where you can be helpful on a kind of technical for the technical layer of how machine learning or ai could be useful and then being picked up by other other bodies you know and you know maybe it sounds like a baby a bit like um uh, you, you know, admitting the defeat before it's even started, but uh, probably we will have at least for a while different views on AI ethics around the world. You know, and and I think if we start with the premise that from the day one we need to have that cohesive, coherent, and single view on that, mm. we're probably defeating ourselves before we started. You know, so I, I think one of one of the defining characteristics of uh, the digital landscape that we see now is that innovation has just happens far more rapidly than the government's capacity to understand it, let alone regulate it. So in a way, what, what you're describing is the ITU almost is a sort of global sandbox where you can sort of test ideas, learn from best sure. practice. Yeah. Um, I mean, did, does it feel like that culturally? There is. That I think it, it is like that. I think sometimes we also want to be that place where the the cutting edge innovation happens. Yeah. And you see, for me, I always, you know, what it's like there are different places for different things. You know, so it's you again. I'm kind of back to from the you know from the strategy one on one. You know, what are your core competences? You know, and how to use your core competences to achieve things in the world. And and you know, and strategy is always what you can do, but also what you can't do as well. So the way if the organization is driven by consensus, is super inclusive, is probably not the organization that can move the fastest and get agreement the fastest and be in a cutting edge, you know, it's just by default, you know, so but it has to try, you know, so for me, HU is a place where brings and unifies different ideas and also democratizes them and helps everyone to be part of that, you know, as much as cutting edge as possible. So it means allows every country, whether they're involved in some technological innovations or not to understand what's happening, what's, you know, allows every country to see, oh, what are the risks in that ecosystem emerging, you know, so not only, and, and helps bring that world, you know, keep that world together and bring that world together. Now, the other thing, you know, the, the kind of deep, deep, deep kind of innovation, deep, uh, uh, deep research will probably take in the places which are even, you know, national governments or like-minded governments or industry, you know, the places where they, you know, when they don't need to agree, you know, where, where they just can move without agreeing and succeed or fail, you know, yeah. and once they succeeded, hopefully, then they come and share with other people. And that's where, you know, where, where the place uh, like ITU is. So that's kind of, I think, you know, that's how I see this. And then even to say sometimes that, okay, we can't agree on the things, you know, and we'll go back and, 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 
you know, and, and do the things uh, by ourselves, you know. So that's why I think it's also, you know, things like TTC, you know, or other settings is super useful. They're useful as a places where like-minded countries or like-minded players, you know, come together and progress the work. But I still believe then they need a place where they meet not like-minded, you know, because I think the our world is sometimes, you know, we forget that we cannot just kind of, you know, communicate and, and collaborate and work with our friends. You know, a lot of times we, you know, even when we live in the neighborhood, not every neighbor is a friend, you know, but we still need to live with them and and, and find the ways to accommodate each other. So I think the HU is that kind of, or UN broader, is that place where you don't just engage with our friends and like mind where you engage with the world and then you bring your ideas and you hopefully, you know, get, the, get them accepted. Well, the hardest the hardest test of that argument is obviously what's happening now with Russia's invasion yeah. of Ukraine. Russia, uh, Russia is effectively locked out of much of the international system at the moment. Like obviously, it's still part of part of the UNSC, and uh, Unger is actually quite divided on on how to treat Russia. But how how? How is Russia operating, or how can Russia operate at the moment within the ITU? Has there been any sanction, or is there any possibility of that emerging? So I think you know, first of all, of course, for member states is to decide to which level, let's say, different member states are involved or not. You know, so and for me, who is hoping or planning to be the next elected official, of course, you know, I always look at that. The very simple, maybe it's too simplistic part of way of the looking in the world. While a country is a member state of the United Nations, it can, you know, has to be part of it and can come to the meetings and can participate. If the global community and member states decide that that country is no longer belongs there, then it no longer belongs there. And we see the different examples how the different organizations and agencies behaved. You know, like we have World Tourism Organization, which decided that uh, let's say. Uh, Russia will not be part of it. You know, we have Human Rights Council where the global community decided that Russia will not, not be part of it. You know, Russia is a member of International Foundations Union and, uh, and it has rights of a member there. Now, again, member states decided in the, or let's say, recent World Foundations Organization Assembly that uh, Russian, uh, Russian experts should not be leading study groups and, uh, and uh, you know, and, but they can participate in them. So, of course, this decision also, what I understand from member states and especially from General Assembly decision, and it was like a, is the doubt of member states that the country, you know, which is seen as uh, not obeying or not respective international laws can lead the process of agreeing on those international norms or international standards. Mm-hmm. And uh, on that base, uh, the decision is, uh, the decision is, um, uh, has been made and probably the decisions can be made in the future. You know, also at you. On the other side, you know, is working in this ITU Council recent resolution on helping Ukraine, or, you know, which faces the aggression, to both you know keep the networks resilient and rebuild those networks. Hopefully, in very near future, you know. So, and then we see that Ukraine is now actually again, you know, you know, restabilizing. The, you know the country to be able at least in some parts of the country to you know to really start rebuilding you know at least that's my maybe hope you know you know and really seeing that you know the country struggle you know so it's also so from my personal perspective if I may you know like also is a bit personal for me because like you know just in December I actually visited 
Kiev. And, and we discussed uh, with a number of regulators, regional regulators, you know, telecommunication regulation. And this also showed how, you know, and, and sitting in the cafes, in restaurants, you know, and then, and then you read how the same area just a few months ago was discussing telecom regulation, now is being bombed. And yeah. colleagues there who, you know, who I met as a telecommunication experts now kind of picked up the guns and, and fighting. That's totally surreal, you know. So and I think for us it's like um, but so for us as international community and maybe this is a bit of a maybe the segue from kind of specific kind of Russian thing is also understanding how that how you know how these tragedies you know are not that far away from each other you know and I think it was also understanding it's also appreciating how tragedies in other parts of the world you know which regretfully are still. Are still, num- uh, you know, a number of them. You know, that we as international community still kind of keep going through them, still keep recognizing, still trying to kind of reconcile it. How we yes stand up to the wars, you know, to those who want war and aggression and, and send a clear message that that's not acceptable in international community as at you in, in its let's say small way as part of the system is doing. But at the same time, we also understand that in longer term. You know, they will probably not disappear from the, you know, from this earth, you know, the people we don't like, and we still need to find a way, you know, we still need to look for those opportunities to push them back from, from you know, but then at the same time, we'll have to work with them in the future, probably, you know, regardless how much we want, you know, I think that's kind of, that's very painful balance, you know, sometimes yeah. very, sometimes becomes very personal personally painful balance but i think those who of us who believe in multinational and multilateral system as a kind of as a constructive way that's the only kind of balance we can yeah it's important to have some forums in which people can keep talking at technical level i think that's that's one of the big lessons of uh, the past few decades um you mentioned building resilience does the ITU have a role in, uh, I suppose, countering uh, countering some of the worst effects of the digital environment that we've seen over, develop over the past ten years? So, thinking of cybersecurity, but also um, disinformation, propaganda, online harms, as we call it in the UK. Is there a role role for the ITU in coordinating or helping again? share best practice amongst members on any of those? So it's like a spectrum as with other things. So so on one end of the spectrum is more what we call hygienic cybersecurity or basic level cybersecurity, including for countries. So ITU has a rather clear mandate on helping capacity building, helping infrastructure building. So for example, ITU helps countries to set up computer emergency response teams or uh, also you know, helping to set national cybersecurity strategies, you know, and, and, and all things like that. So that's rather well established part of our ITU. ITU has been working a lot, and that was part of my mandate and my role of ITU as head of corporate strategy and child online protection. And at that time, I, UK, so child. child online protection, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, UK is also a big leader on that. It was, you know, on the you know, the UK government has has had some strong in, uh, initiatives in that regard as well. You know, and and there was quite a bit of collaboration between ITU and has been quite a bit of collaboration between ITU and member states like UK on on that. And again, all of that is awareness building. A lot of that is giving tools to countries to give to the parents and teachers and children themselves. You know, to, uh, to cope with that. Then, when you go further up stack, when especially when you talk about norms of 
you know behavior in, in the cyberspace you know then uh, a lot uh, that's also becomes a bit trickier because IQ is a technical organization so member states a lot of member states are not happy for the IQ to kind of lead in the norm development and especially in the world where views and those norms are rather different you know there are some regional frameworks like in Europe we have with the best convention on cybercrime now however we have a global process on a, a global process in New York on international cyber uh, cybercrime treaty which we'll we'll see with athletes you know so then disinformation and other things are also something that you know it's you probably not the best expert that's more like a human because the balance between human rights and all that is a bit different uh, finally what we call even more geopolitical political issues actually there are bodies in the UN proper, so-called government group, governmental group of experts, an open-ended working group that works on a, you know, cyber, uh, you know, like cyberspace and the peace and uh, peace and security uh, issues, and try to set the norms of responsible state behavior and, uh, you know, on on cyberspace and also. So these are different bodies, and I mentioned before. You know, because and I think that's good that there are different bodies, different expertise places, you know, and it's also, you know, they see you know, organization drugs and crime and others kind of active in that space. So I think ATU comes from more like a technical side of the stack, you know, so technical side, infrastructure side and helping countries to secure that and ensuring that everyone has the same level. And then, you know, letting other bodies to kind of deal with other things in, in their expertise. But I suppose if you, if you spot vulnerabilities emerge in a particular area that uh, occur in a multinational space, that is something that you would then... I think then we would collaborate. We would collaborate. And it depends on the CITU itself, let's say, security is not an operational organization. So it's not like a global computer emergency response team. It doesn't receive directly like all the global threats. And these are like kind of for the country, for the different... And there are different organizations that do that, you know, so including certs and exchange uh, information. But uh, but of course, there is, there is a, for example, again, part of my role in ITU was agreeing UN-wide cyber security and cyber crime action plan. So basically agreeing how different UN agencies, you know, will, will behave. And in that regard, ITU was one of the leaders of that process, you know, so among the UN agencies also recognizing ITU's expertise on that. Uh, and then, of course, helping countries there. But I don't think... And again, that's kind of sometimes complicated in this international system, but you never have this one, you know, one pole of kind of center of gravity, you know, you have these different players that need to work together. That's why it's so important for all those players to really have that partnership mindset and to say, okay, I can contribute to you, to this, you know, but this maybe you can do, you know, I'll pass on a baton to you, you'll pass baton to me and kind of in the simplest way to do that. You know, like again, in my... You know, experience before, you know, now in, in this campaign, I, I see a very good reception. I'm in the campaign, not yet elected official, I'm had the opportunity to discuss with quite a few representatives of UN, different other UN agencies, and you see that great reception of that approach. I think that's the way forward. We kind of not saying that you will lead in this, but like saying that you will be part of that fabric and then we will work together with others to achieve. You've done a huge amount to unpack the IT's vast agenda today. Um, it's obviously particularly fascinating for our listeners to hear more about how how you pick up the baton, as you've put it. I mean, what would you what would you say to businesses looking to engage more deeply with the ITU, particularly through the sort of partnerships and study groups that we've talked about? What's what's the best way in, if you like? 
So it's a different way. Of course, this kind of it's very simplistic way to just one last question. So this is that uh, to you, you know, any business can become a so-called sector member for to you. So that means <clears throat> they can join either one of the sectors or two of them or all three of them and participate. That will open up <clears throat> the ability to participate in any activity of the ITU and uh, and study groups and and, and, and all of like that. Now the you know the ones who just want to try and are interested in a specific topic, they can actually just become so-called associate, which means they can participate in some specific study groups. You know, then of course there's opportunity to participate in specific initiatives, in like um, uh, initiatives like, uh, uh, for example, you know, partner to connect initiative and other initiatives in specific country level initiatives that they use always welcoming partners. Uh, for. I think sometimes, admittedly, it's not always easiest to understand how to engage in ITU. ITU is rather, even though it's rather small organization, sometimes it feels rather complex and, you know, and all these numbers, study group three, question five slash one, you know, and all these things that, that you sometimes can befuddle some newcomers. But what I always so that you has a membership team as well, so in partnership teams, I always encourage to reach out and to write, you know, if you have, but also if you have a, uh, if you have a specific idea, is also kind of suggest. And if you has been, you know, over the years pretty flexible, I think, you know, having seen how other UN agencies are engaged, I think it used them one of the most flexible engaging with the private sector. You know, we don't have much qualms of doing that and, and all that. Sometimes maybe it's not as fast as private sector would want, you know, to be in and different, uh, but does engage. Now, of course, you know, I wouldn't be running as a new elected official will say there's no things to improve, you know. So of course part of my campaign is also, you know, a couple of things. First of all, to really engage private sector on a decision making level and finding the place for that. You know, some other UN agencies have things like, you know, consultative council or business council, you know, to actually really have private sector leaders not only contribute to the specific topics or specific agenda items, but actually giving helping to set the strategic direction to organization. So this is one thing that I think is very important. Another thing is to simplify it to you and have it really more transparent and understandable for newcomers, you know, so to a little bit guide it to you and to say, not only guide in terms of topics, but even in terms of seniority. Sometimes in the UN, we, we kind of get this high level itis, as we'd say, you know, like everything is high level, everyone want to have executives and senior people. And then we realize that we don't have anywhere because they just confused where they can come and contribute meaningfully. So, so really, you know, I really hope to simplify that and, and, uh, and, uh, and to make it uh, more understandable and, and clear, you know, so, and also, you know, as I mentioned before, so idea is that I would like to kind of reach out and understand the other different non stakeholder groups that we not be have been part of ITU as well. To ensure that they understand that you, they, you know, they know they're welcome. They know how to engage, and 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 we can contribute to build and work together. So we still there are things to improve. But however, as a part of the family for years, I can say that you, especially on this one, the general intent and instinct is to engage with the private sector. So we just need private sector to come, and then, of course, uh, you know, you know, there's always easiest possibility to become a member there's other always and we still keep working to improve that ability to engage in a meaningful impactful and and clear way that is an extremely uh positive and hopeful note to end on uh we would 
as global council, we would, of course, like to help businesses do that and help them engage with you as well. We wish you extremely well for the rest of your campaign. We'll be following it very closely and we will be reporting further as we head towards the conference in the autumn. But thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, John. Thank you, Global Council and all, all the friends and colleagues there. And really, you know, hopefully this conversation was useful and hopefully we'll have a lot more conversation in the future on how to progress in this digital world and how to keep the world together, how to keep the world talking and how to engage the private sector in those conversations as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.